Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, September 27, <coughs> A.D. 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, continuing the study of Dr. Unger's book, Archaeology and the Old Testament. All right. Um, our faith as Christians does not depend on proof produced by archaeology or any other such investigation. However, it has a value. Now, authenticate the Bible. There are things in the Bible that have been disputed by some people or denied to be true, and archaeology has brought up evidence which shows that they were true after all. And I'm going to give some specific examples of this. It was claimed that the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were mythical figures like Santa Claus and Snow White and the seven dwarfs. Now, archaeology has not um, produced specific written tablets with the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it has turned up so much information about the time when these men lived and the society that they lived in, which exactly matches what is given in the book of Genesis, that this uh, can be rated as, let's say, uh, circumstantial but very real evidence to them. This is one. The idea that uh, Moses couldn't have written the five books of the first five books of the Bible because the art of writing was unknown in Moses' day. This is exposed for pure uh, nonsense today. The art of writing was at least 1,500 years old in the time of Moses, if not more. And there's several specific confirmations. The fall of Jericho and its date. <clears throat> I'm sorry to have to tell you this is questioned again. We'll take that up in depth when we come to it. Uh, Belshazzar versus the last king of Babylon. This used to be a regular stock item for critics of the Bible. The book of Daniel speaks of Belshazzar as the last king of Babylon. He's the fellow that saw the handwriting on the wall and was there when the city fell to the Persians. But according to uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, a fellow named Nabonidus, his family name was Nabonidus, was the last king of Babylon. And the critics said, uh, Always, if it's Herodotus versus the Bible, they prefer Herodotus. I, I don't know why, but this is the way their mind works. And Bible believers for a long time couldn't answer that until further discovery cleared it up. And uh, again, we'll come to this in depth later, but um, the facts are, Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, all right, but he got uh, sort of weary of life and thought he couldn't take it any longer, and then... Um, went into retirement in a Babylonian monastery or something of the kind to um, sort of relax and left his son, Belshazzar, as deputy king on the ground. So although Nabonidus was king in title strictly, he was in retirement when the fall of the city came and his son, Belshazzar, was on the ground and was deputy king and was called king. And so the book of Daniel was confirmed after all. Incidentally, this explains, which nobody had ever explained before, what Belshazzar said to Daniel. If you can read the writing, you will be made the third ruler of the kingdom and certain other honors. Why wouldn't he say the second ruler, Belshazzar the first and Daniel the second? It wasn't in his power to say this. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is number one, Belshazzar is number two, and now Daniel to be number three. It didn't last long because the Persians got the place, but this is what he said. And uh, this was cleared up by this further discovery. Another one is Sargon, king of, Syria, of the Assyrian, unknown until 1843, but mentioned in the Bible once in Isaiah. 
this is cleared up. This palace was dug up. Jehoiakim, the uh, next to the last king of Judah, taken prisoner to Babylon, and he was in prison there 37 years, I believe. And uh, it speaks in the in the uh, book of Second Kings and in Jeremiah. Uh, after 37 years, he was paroled in Babylon, not free to go home to Jerusalem, but he was let out of prison and given a better ration card and some better, more freedom and better treatment. And this was, this was confirmed by the discovery of a Babylonian tablet that listed the people who were given amnesty and better food and their liberty within the city of Babylon when um, the king, I believe, um, the death of one king and the accession of the next one, and they celebrated this by this amnesty, and it lists Yalkin, that's the Babylonian spelling of Jehoiakim, of Yehuda, of Judah, as one of the beneficiaries of this, this deal. So this was a confirmation. Now, our faith doesn't need that. You can be a Christian without them discovering a clay tablet about Jehoiakim getting out of the jug. But uh, on the other hand, it's nice to know that... Um, as Peter said, we haven't followed cunningly devised fables. Our faith can stand the test of historical research. A general confirmation would be the book of Esther. In Susa or Shushan, branch capital of the kingdom or empire of Persia. Nothing which was thoroughly excavated a few years ago. Nothing was found that was directly confirmatory of the book of Esther. That is, no names of Mordecai or Esther or Haman and so forth, only the king. But um, the excavation shows the city to be exactly such a place as is in detail described in the book of Esther. Nobody could possibly have written that story and, and uh, the description it gives of the old draperies and pavements and so forth of the royal palace and the, the um, feast that they held and so on that wasn't an eyewitness and had seen it with their own eyes. And therefore this shows the book of Esther is not, as some people have said, a piece of historical romancing, um, sort of a fairy tale, but um, everything that has been discovered rings true with the most amazing um, fidelity and accuracy to what was discovered there. Now that's on uh, confirming the Bible. Uh, I say this is nice to know, although your faith as a Christian surely doesn't depend on this. And secondly, it illustrates and explains the Bible. There are a good many things that... Uh, in former times were obscure, especially in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament even. And archaeology has cleared up some of these and also pointed out a few um, real mistranslations. Uh, one of these is, um, it says in Joshua, cities that stood on their mounds. The, the King James Version says, cities that stood in their strength, Joshua did not destroy. This is now known to be a mistranslation cities that stood on their tell or their mount. It refers to one of these archaeological tells. You notice the diagram in this book on page 20. One of these things. And nine levels are left out there for lack of space. But this is Bethshan near the, near the Sea of Galilee, near where the Jordan leaves the Sea of Galilee to go on further south. And, and this, uh, that's the city that stood on its mound or on its tell that had been built up through ages of occupation. This and other places similar to this are cleared up. There's a number of cases of this where the King James Version and earlier ones said cities that stood in their strength. 
Now that was before archaeology, before one of these tells had ever been dug into. Nobody knew what was in them or had ever thought about it specially. Maybe they thought God made the world with these things on them just like that. But anyhow, now this is cleared up and certainly that is what that means. Now another thing under mentions here is the long lives of the anti-Dilevian <coughs> patriarchs who had the world's record for longevity. Mr. Brown? Methuselah. Methuselah. And how many years? 969. 969. Nobody got to a thousand. Is this right? Uh, Adam, what was it, 930? Something like this. And um, several others in the 8 and 900s and then some less. Shortest in that list was... Um, uh, who was it? It was uh, taken to heaven without dying, Enoch. You hear of a little girl telling the story of Enoch that she'd heard at uh, church school to a friend. So, uh, you, can, you can get something what kids say. And she was telling this story about Enoch. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You might uh, suppose this meant uh, he died, but... Uh, the New Testament says he was translated that he should not see death, so it doesn't mean that he died. Well, she was telling this story. He says, once there was a man named Enoch. He was a good man. Enoch loved God, and Enoch and God were real friends, and uh, they used to go out together for walks. And uh, some days they walked just a little piece, and some days they walked quite a way. And one day they walked farther than they ever walked before, and uh, it began to get dark. And the Lord said, Enoch, it's beginning to get dark. And Enoch said, Lord, it sure is. And the Lord said, Enoch, you know, really now, we're a lot nearer to my house than we are to yours. I'd be if you just come home with me and live with me from now on. And Enoch said, okay, I'll do it. And so they did. And she said, people went out to look for Enoch, and they never did find him. <laughs> now, that's childish, of course, very naive. But um, on the other hand, I'll buy that about some professor who says the story of the myth and isn't true. Um, did I tell you the one about Arthur Linkletter who had a kid telling the story of Jonah while we're on this kind of thing? So a four-year-old told the story of Jonah on Linkletter's program. Kids say the darndest things. And he told it very straight and well, too, uh, just as it is in the Bible. And finally, this monster, whale, great fish, uh, caught Jonah up on the shore. And Linkletter said, now, that you told it fine, Sonny. Uh, what, what lesson do we learn from this? He got little People make whales sick. <laughs> that's that I guess to do I don't know well uh, Methuselah 969 and none up to a thousand and uh, the Babylonian story of the ten kings that reigned before the flood how do the ages run on them Mr. Neri how do they are they older they have longer lives how about it longer shorter Oh, yes, vastly longer. Methuselah is a mere uh, infant in arms compared to these guys. <laughs> the ages of the individual kings ranging from 30 to 45,000 years per king. I think 18,000 was the shortest of any one reign, and some of the bigger ones up to uh, 40 and 50,000 and more. And uh, terrific, you know. Now, in comparison with those figures... If the story of the of these fellows before the flood in Genesis is a myth, it's a mighty poor myth. Trying to make a myth, well, dear me, let's make a good one while we're doing it. Nine hundred and sixty-nine. That just ain't not. Pardon me. That just isn't anything at all <laughs> in comparison. Incidentally, um, on this, 
You know, I don't care if we get behind a little because uh, the, there's less material on the New Testament than on the Old. And we can afford to take a little more time on the Old Testament part if we want to. And anyway, uh, a new theory about the long lives of these patriarchs. The common explanation given in liberal circles is that uh, the story is a myth. And they didn't really live that long. They just lived like other people today. Uh, those who believe in the Bible and take it for true have commonly held that um, these early people still had uh, tremendous physical vitality and they <clears throat> ate food that was produced by uh, an unspoiled and undepleted earth that was rich in uh, basic minerals like magnesium and so forth and that they had the vitality to live so long because uh, humanity's sin had not yet done its destructive work in the human physical system very much. But of course, finally they died. As you read the record in Genesis, the emphasis on every one of these is that in spite of living so long, they died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Except, except uh, Enoch. Monotonous regularity. The emphasis is on the fact that even these long livers, finally what God had said would happen, did happen, and they died. Now, that, that is a, a good explanation of it about their pristine and primal physical vigor and the condition of the earth. They didn't breathe the polluted atmosphere that we breathe, for example, and uh, so forth. But there's a new theory about aging that uh, is getting some attention. This is a combination of biblical studies and medical research. And that is that aging, even today, is caused by cosmic rays, very high energy rays from outer space, hitting the human body and doing irreparable cell damage. Cosmic ray will go through inches of metal. It's uh, very uh, powerful rays. And they're hitting the earth all the time here, one and there. When you can't see them or feel them, but uh, they can be detected by scientific equipment and are uh, very destructive of what they hit. And uh, when a cosmic ray hits a cell, that cell has had it. And the theory is that when you've been around so and so long, you've had enough cell damage from cosmic rays that uh, the body can no longer uh, repair its damage in any way so that you could survive. And then you'd get a degenerative disease like cirrhosis of the liver or something like that, and pretty soon uh, you die. But that in the... Um, now, that's the medical part. This is the theory only. It is disputed by some people. The other part of it is from biblical studies that um, uh, one interpretation of Genesis, the early part is, that uh, before the flood, it hadn't rained but that there was a very dense vapor canopy. If you think today is humid, imagine a day ten times this humid, or fifty times this humid. Uh, when it was so humid that uh, the humidity almost dripped on the earth, but it hadn't rained. And this dense vapor canopy going away up high, up practically to the stratosphere. And that this would um, blunt the uh, cosmic rays so that when they hit people, the damage they could do would be very greatly diminished and therefore uh, the cell damage would be so much less that people could live up to these hundreds of years. And then when the flood came, all this tremendous collection uh, of water came down, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and this was collected in the oceans and bodies of water on the earth, and the weather after the flood became approximately what it has been ever since and is today. And therefore, after the flood, you read of no more of these long rivers. Well, Abraham, uh, what was it, 100 and, um, let's say, 175, 
180. No, Isaac was 180. Abraham, 175. Joseph, 110. Moses, 120. And after that, um, Joshua, 110. After that, you get down to about what it is today. And, and no more of these. Now, this is only a theory. It is highly uh, debatable and hypothetical, but I thought it was interesting enough to mention it. And um, the fact that there can be a theory like this, which can be seriously discussed, shows how unscholarly it is to dismiss a story like this about the long life of these people just out of hand as something that couldn't possibly be true. You see, by what right do we take the average lifespan of people today and make that a norm for what could have happened before the flood? Even today, every one of you in this classroom, and even myself, has a prospect of living about uh, 20 years longer than your great-grandparents had when, when they were your age. Uh, insurance company statistics can't tell who will die in a certain year, but they can tell of the people 50 years old almost exactly how many out of a thousand will die this year. And um, this is pretty pretty exact. And um, by what? It's increasing. Medical science is increasing the lifespan of people, although uh, air pollution and so forth have cut it down, no doubt, too. But anyhow, by what right do we assume that what is average today is truly normal or was, was the real case right after humanity was created? And also remember, people were created to live and not to die. It is, it is death and not life that requires explanation. People were created to live and not to die and uh, the urge to live and the, the vitality to live was strong in those early people. Well, this is uh, illustrating and explaining the Bible, maybe. Thirdly, archaeology supplements the Bible. There are gaps in Old Testament history and some in the New Testament concerning which uh, we had no information until archaeology filled it in. Amri, king of Israel, the father of the notorious Ahab, was politically famous, but greats only one short paragraph in the Old Testament record. He was not uh, important from God's standpoint, except incidentally, Amri. But he was internationally famous, so much so that the Assyrians and Babylonians referred to Israel as Beit Humri, which is Amri land. Can you imagine a radio broadcast from London or Paris referring to the United States as Nixon land? Or a few years back as Johnson land or Kennedy land? Well, uh, they don't. But they called the land of Israel Amri land. And a great deal has been, well, some has been found out about this fellow from archaeological sources that isn't given in the Bible. The Scythian invasion of Palestine in the 600s B.C., not even mentioned in the Bible, but known from, except a vague allusion or two, a vague hint, and known from the archaeological sources certainly to have happened. That place Beth Shan. I was showing you a picture of the mound. That was later called Scythopolis, city of the Scuthoi, or the Scythians. And this is known from archaeology. It was not known from the Bible. The destruction of Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located in the period of the Judges, a few miles north of Jerusalem. This was destroyed by the Philistines about 1050 B.C. And... Um, this destruction of Shiloh is not recorded in the, the Bible as a historical event. But in the book of Jeremiah, I believe it is, one of the prophets, anyhow, I think it was Jeremiah, there's a threat to the 
people of Judah, if you don't repent and come clean, you're going to be destroyed just like Shiloh was. An incidental mention of it. But archaeologists dug the place up, they found it, they identified the spot, they found the layer of ashes and debris from the time when Shiloh was destroyed and they were able to date it 1050 B.C. This is just um, before the time of, or about the beginning of the reign of Saul. Now then, um, these are places where the science of archaeology has filled some gaps, missionary. The jars. Well, this is um, you know what page that's in the hundred books. Let's look at. And they dated the the layer of ashes in the fire by the type of pottery found in it. Now, pottery is practically indestructible. You can break a dish, but the pieces will still be there till the end of the world. Um, something made of silver will corrode away. But pottery, once it has been fired in this ceramic, lasts uh, while the world remains. And this has a definite um, sequence. They can arrange this in a series, uh, century by century and era by era, that is very specific. And this ties in one place with another and one date with another. And it was the pottery that enabled them to date the layer of destruction and ashes from the Philistine destruction of this city of Shiloh, the layer we built. All right. Now, uh, some of these particular items, uh, questions in your syllabus ask to describe them, the Moabite stone, all of these we'll take up in more detail later in the course. Lakish Ostraka, that is a Greek neuter parophys, it's uh, singular Ostrakon. One is Westeriosiolin, if you've got two or more, it's Ostraka, that's a plural. These were on stone, on pottery, broken dishes, written in ink from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. The steel of <coughs> Ben Hadad of Syria, and uh, one or two other things here. This Moabite stone, um, it was set up 830 B.C., discovered 1868, and the Arabs that discovered it deliberately broke it to pieces. They figured they'd get more money for it selling a piecemeal, and as a whole, they built a hot fire and heated it very hot and then dumped it in cold water and it cracked to pieces. And they peddled the pieces, and the pieces were later recovered, all except one. But fortunately, a French uh, scholar had made a kind of a carbon impression of it before these fellows did their dirty work on it. And so the Moabite stone is today in the Louvre, I believe, in Paris, and the missing little piece has been put in in plaster of Paris, and the writing on it restored from the squeeze or impression that he had made. Uh, <coughs> not in favor of Arabs uh, finding important archaeological treasures like this. The Jews are more careful than Jeff. The importance that... Uh, is um, it mentions Amri, king of Israel, father of Ahab, therefore this confirms his existence, and it is in the Moabite language, but which turns out to be almost identical with biblical Hebrew. You see, the Moabites descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. They're kin to the Israelites. The Israelites were forbidden to fight them when they entered the land under Joshua. 
because they were kindred to them. And later they did fight them. The, the Moabites started, of course. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, this uh, incidentally, this Moabite stone is a terrible thing that it records. Uh, so and so many hundreds of people that Misha, king of Moab, captured men and women and children and infants. He sacrificed them all. He killed them all as an offering to his god, the Moab. And he said they were sacred and dedicated to the Israelites that he captured. This was Meli, X squared and Y cubed, what the Misha, king of Moab, did to those poor helpless people. Now then, uh, uh, two peoples have been two entire nations proved to exist by archaeology that are mentioned in the Bible but were unknown previously to history. The Hittites and the Hurrians. Now, they weren't called Hurrians because they hurried. Anybody know what these people are called in the Bible? H-O-R-I-T-E-S, Horites. The Edomites were partly descended from Esau, son of Abraham, son of, of uh, Isaac, and partly descended from the Hurrians or Horites. These are believed to be uh, just two ways of spelling the same name. And these intermarried and formed the historical Edomite people. And a great deal has been learned about them that uh, was previously completely unknown by archaeological discovery, and especially about the Hittites. Now, this brings us to question 23. Anybody want to take up anything back of this first before we go on? <coughs> well, all right. The biblical and Babylonian account of creation. According to Dr. Unger, where was the cradle of civilization? Well, where was it? Mr. Denison? Tigris-Euphrates River. Is this agreed upon by um, secular anthropologists today? You won't find this in Unger's book. I suspect you might know anyhow. Well, uh, the... Uh, Evolutionists claim that humanity originated in Africa in the Olduvai Gorge of the Tanzania. Tanganyika or Tanzania, is that where it is? I think so. And they have found um, skeletons of a man-like creature, uh, much smaller than people, however, two or three types, Zinjanthropus and so forth, they've given them names. It is not proved, however, that these were really human. You see, how can you tell by looking at a somewhat broken up skeleton? Could this creature, when it was living, talk or not? Could it reason? Could it think? Was it, did it have personality? You can't tell it from the bones. And so this is highly debatable yet, but even on uh, that basis that uh, I don't believe in evolution, but even on that basis, suppose we would accept that, that humanity originated by evolution from the anthropoids in the uh, center of Africa there, near the equator. This would not contradict Unger's statement. He doesn't say where humanity originated. He says where civilization began. And there's no doubt about that. Whatever you say about these uh, semi-human varmints in the Olduvai Gorge, they didn't build any cities or leave any writing or anything of the kind. And civilization certainly began in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And this is not only true according to the Bible, but um, it's confirmed by secular history and by archaeological discovery. So this is well known. 
Now, incidentally, the, the uh, civilization of the of Mesopotamia, Tigris-Euphrates Valley, is almost certainly the oldest that the world has known. It is older than that of Egypt by uh, around uh, a thousand years. That of Egypt was discovered first. You see, Napoleon started the ball rolling in Egypt, and archaeology was a dead cinch in Egypt in a way. It's sandy, it's very easy to get at things. You don't have to dig through a lot of hard clay, and uh, some of the main monuments are sticking right up like a sore thumb out of the ground, like the pyramids. So archaeology got started, modern archaeology, around 1800 in Egypt. And uh, the real uh, development of archaeology in, uh, in countries of the Near East and Southwestern Asia didn't come till around 1850. 1850 and after was the heyday of that, still going on today, of course. But uh, the great discoveries came in the middle of the 1800s. And so although Egypt was discovered first, what was discovered in the region of Assyria and Babylonia has been proved to be older. And um, it is possible that one place in Pakistan, uh, formerly northern India, is equally old. A lot of stuff found there. It seems to be writing that nobody can read. There's your challenge for you. And it is also possible that the earliest civilization of China is nearly as old as that of Babylonia. But I think to date, Babylonia wins the first prize on demonstrated and accepted antiquity. And you know, we don't have any real antiques in western Pennsylvania. That blockhouse at the Point State Park in Pittsburgh, how many of you have seen that? Well, that goes back uh, a little over 200 years, 17, what, 1750, something like that. Uh, French and Indian War days, that isn't really old. That's the oldest we got around here. The oldest authentic building in western Pennsylvania. If you've got a house that's 100 years old, they call it an antique. What's your comment, Mr. Bates? Yeah, Fort McIntosh, but the fort doesn't exist anymore, does it? It's just a monument. Yeah, Yeah, Fort Beaver, let me inform you. Anybody here from Beaver? You're from Beaver, huh? All right. It's 100 years older than, than Beaver Falls. Beaver Falls is a mere kindergarten kid in one city. Celebrated its 100th anniversary uh, in 19... Uh, what was it? Uh, 59, was it? No, since then. 69, all right. And, and Fort McIntosh was put up um, just uh, before or about the time of the American Revolution at Beaver, where navigation and insurance and uh, the other streets to meet a little square there along the Ohio River. And they have a monument, but the fort is long gone. And this was when Beaver was, um, you know, it's not named after the animal, the beaver. It's named after an Indian king called King Beaver. And our river out here is named after him. And Aliquippa is named after an Indian queen. And uh, Monaca, I always supposed this was Italian. And something like Monaco, where Princess, Princess Grace, uh, you know, uh, Grace Kelly reigns in Flanders on the Riviera. Not at all. It's the name of an Indian warrior named Monica Tutha. And his other name was Scarlietti in a different Indian dialect. Monica Tutha, and this has gotten shortened to Monaca, and it's an Indian name. And this place bristles with them. Conoquinesi, uh, it's an Indian name. But Beaver Falls, just a beaver. All right, now then, uh, 
Andrew says we shouldn't be surprised if um, the earliest human traditions from this region closely resemble statements of the Bible. If this is where civilization really originated, traditions get handed down, even though in distorted form, still they get handed down. And therefore, it is just what we should expect if the Bible is true and humanity, at least civilized humanity, got its start there. Uh, it's just what you would expect, that there would be some correspondences between the uh, tradition handed down in that part of the world and later committed to writing and what we have in the Bible which we accept as the word of God. Now, the creation tablets, Enuma Elish. Anybody know what that means literally? This is the title given to this series of tablets. Enuma Elish. Sounds very learned. Well, it simply means when on high. As our Bible starts out in the beginning, so the Sumerian and Babylonian tablets start out to went on high. And then goes on to say things that happened. And um, these were discovered in various stages. <clears throat> Been discovered in more than one form and in more than one place. Uh, what is the name of the great inscription, very inaccessible, that gave the key to, uh, to reading these things? Well, it's Behistun or Bisitun, it's spelled two different ways, and this is in Iran or Persia, but that has three kinds of writing, and one of them is the ancient Babylonian and Assyrian wedge-shaped or cuneiform writing. This gave the key to this. Now then, the first find was um, several investigators, Layard, Rassam, and George Smith, in the middle 1800s, 1848 to 1876. They discovered the library of a king named Ashurbanipal. Uh, he had quite a library, and a large part of it has been uh, translated. This is where they found a clay tablet with the piece missing and went back years later and just happened to find the piece and put it in. Quite an amazing thing, but it's true. Fitted and completed the meaning. Now, um, this king lived 600 and something B.C. at the time of the prophet Jeremiah in the Bible. But the clay tablets with the creation story on them tell a story which quite evidently was fixed in its form long before those particular tablets were written. Just as we might have a Bible printed in 1970, but it's a copy of things that are, of course, vastly older than that. So, uh, seven clay tablets discovered there in this man's library with a thousand lines of script. And later, some more tablets were discovered. And... Um, Unger says the story itself comes from the time of Hammurabi. Now, they used to say, <clears throat> many uh, biblical studies used to say Hammurabi was a contemporary of Abraham. This was based upon a uh, supposed identification of names. Amraphel, king of Shinar, mentioned among the kings in Genesis 14 with whom Abraham fought and from whom he got his nephew Lot back. Amraphel, supposed to be a spelling of Hammurabi. It sounds vaguely like it in English, but it has since been pointed out that the Semitic consonants are all different, and therefore these couldn't possibly be two forms of the same man's name. And Hammurabi is now dated in about the time of Joseph in the Bible. 
see, uh, Abraham and uh, two generations before Joseph. About the time of Joseph, in the, uh, uh, about 1700, 1676, 1728, 1676 BC, about 1700 BC, time of Joseph. What is the purpose of this uh, set of tablets that was discovered? I mean, uh, the way they read on the face of them, what did the scholars decide as to why somebody wrote this story up the way they did? What were they trying to prove? Well, could you promote politics by writing some tablets? Uh, what city, you see, the different cities in lower Mesopotamia held supreme power in time. One time it was Kish, another time it was Iraq, and so forth. And when Babylon came to be the supreme one, and founded first the old Babylonian Empire, and then along afterwards the Neo-Babylonian Empire, in time of Nebuchadnezzar, in the, about 600 B.C., uh, this made Babylon supreme over the rest, whereas formerly it had been one among others, and some other cities had been supreme. They, they had a turnabout, sort of. And when Babylon became supreme, it became necessary to promote the idea that the chief god of Babylon was also the supreme one among the gods. And the chief god of Babylon was Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K, spelled in the Old Testament Merodach, M-E-R-O-D-A-C-H, same god, same uh, being, Marduk. When Cyrus, king of Persia, marched on Babylon to capture the city, he said in a proclamation that Marduk had marched side by side with him and had commanded him to do such and such and such and such. Nobody else saw Marduk. But Cyrus said Marduk marched side by side. Well, every country, he told them, that uh, their main god was just exactly in cahoots with him. <laughs> this, is how, this is how he promoted his political fortunes. All right, these tablets, although they no doubt go way back farther than that and are based on very ancient traditions, were written up in the form in which they were found to sell the idea that Marduk, the god of Babylon, is the chief god and therefore Babylon has a right to be the chief city. That was the, uh, the uh, concealed but quite obvious motive back of this. Now I think one more thing before we go on to what's in these tablets. A second form of these were found in some of them uh, in the Sumerian language. The Sumerians were the oldest people in that part of the world. One of my students in Bible 101 got them mixed up with the Samaritans. The Sumerians and the Samaritans. No connection. The Sumerians, a people of unknown antecedents, but whatever they were, they were not Semites, as the Babylonians were, descended from Shem. You see, the Babylonians are Semites distantly related to the Israelites, the Hebrews or the Jews. But the Sumerians, who were the first known people there, and where they came from is a good question. Nobody knows the answer to that. They had a non-Semitic language, entirely different. It has been deciphered and translated, and you can buy a Sumerian grammar. They used to make them on clay tablets, and when the teacher of grammar was vexed with a student, he could throw the book at it. Which was immediate and very obvious result. But, <coughs> you know, it weighed a half a pound or so, maybe, and made a brick. Well, <coughs> so the book at it. 
Uh, it is possible that the Sumerians were akin to the ancient Chinese, who also were not originally inhabitants of China, but came overland from some Shangri-La in Western Asia. Uh, there are similarities, a little bit, between the facial and physiognomy type, and uh, some between the writing and language of the ancient Chinese and the Sumerians. This is still very much up in the air, but uh, I ask you now, if they aren't related to the ancient Chinese, who are they related to? And if they didn't come from the same place as the ancient Chinese came from, where did they come from? Anyhow, they were in there first, and their language is called Sumerian. And later, the Babylonians, who were at that time called Akkadians, and had a Semitic language called Akkadian, A-double-K-A-D-I-A-N, invaded the place, conquered them, and then merged with them, so that it became called Sumer and Akkad. And these kings would use the double name, King of Sumer and Akkad, or Akkad and Sumer. And uh, the civilization merged. The two languages continue to exist, and clay tablets are found in both. And in some particular things, we have them in the two languages. Now then, uh, the uh, Sumerians possibly entered that, at that time, very fertile area as long ago as 6,000 years, 4,000 B.C., possibly, <coughs> and developed a high civilization. That area is very barren today. There's always water in those great rivers, but the land has become salty, and they could hardly produce very much food there anymore, but they make their money today out of petroleum royalties. And the kings of these little shakedoms and so forth ride around, they haven't many roads to ride on, but where they do, they ride in style. Gold-plated Lincoln Continentals custom-made, this kind of thing. <coughs> Maybe saw the commercial of the Arab king that was uh, offered by a salesman a king-sized mattress. And he finally said he'd take it, and the salesman said, how many? He said, king-sized one, queen-sized 40. <laughs> this is a commentary on holy matrimony among the Mohammedans. <laughs> it isn't really 40. They're not really allowed that many. But anyway, um, now then, the the creation account on these uh, seven tablets here. Uh, if you read the abstracts of these in Unger's book, what is the impression you got of this? I don't want to take up this gribble in absolute detail, but uh, what in this story, what impression did you get from this? Similar. All right. Uh, completely so? No. Not. All right. Do you think the gods of Babylon and the Sumerians behaved themselves very well. No. <laughs> now, you name it, they did it. Talk about the escapades and shenanigans. But, uh, you name it and they did it. Now, of course, like all pagan gods, they're products of the human mind. That's where the pagan gods come from. The Greeks and the Latins and the Babylonians and all the rest of them made gods in their own image. And since the people have all kinds of evil and sinful lusts stirring up in them. They picture the gods as like that too. The Bible pictures a holy God who made man in his image, but paganism pictures humans who uh, invented gods in the human image. Well, the conduct of these gods is um, highly unconventional, not to say scandalous. And I'm afraid it wouldn't meet the moral code of Geneva College. 
Certainly not. But uh, <coughs> you notice um, originally there were fresh and salt water oceans. According to the Bible, originally there was nothing. And they tell you only Christianity and the Jewish faith, and that is the, the Holy Bible, presents in a pure form the doctrine of creation out of nothing. And therefore, this is the only faith that has room for a God who is truly infinite. If God created things out of something, then there's something besides God that he uses material, then God isn't infinite. See, there's something besides him to start with. Mohammedans believe in creation out of nothing, but this doesn't belong to them. They switched this from us. And that's where they got that. You know, um, some of them just object to the compared religion class last year, but I made this comment. There was a lady who wrote some poetry, which she thought was just wonderful. A friend didn't think so, but she sent it to a publisher in New York hoping to get it published in book form. And the publisher sent it back and said, Dear Madam, your poetry is both good and original. But unfortunately, the part that's good is not original, and the part that's original is not good. And you could say of the Mohammedans that the faith of Islam is both good and original, but the part that's good is not original, and the part that's original is not good. The lecture that you've just heard by Dr. J.G. Voss, Professor Emeritus and former chairman of the Department of Biblical Studies, Religious Education and Philosopher, at Geneva College. Geneva College is a fully accredited Christian liberal arts college. It accepts both men and women students and offers a wide variety of studies within a Christian perspective. Located in western Pennsylvania, about 30 miles from Pittsburgh, the college is four miles from the Beaver Valley interchange of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Unlike many nominal Christian colleges, Geneva seeks to be truly and consistently Christian and has made real progress in pursuing this aim. Geneva College seeks to be not only a good college plus Christianity, but a truly Christian college with a real integration between the Christian faith and all branches of academic scholarship. For a copy of the catalog and other publicity material, address Admissions Office, Geneva College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, 15010. These messages are reproduced by the Mount Olive Presbyterian Church Tape Library at Post Office Box 422, Mount Olive, Mississippi, 39119. For further reproduction of this tape, for the purpose of distribution, should be requested from the Mount Olive Presbyterian Church Tape Library in Mount Olive, Mississippi.